I'm reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verses 43 to 62. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. An argument started amongst the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and made him stand beside him. Then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead and went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts a hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Cathy. Uh, It's good to have role models, isn't it? people whose example we can follow. But we also need to learn from the mistakes of other people. And that's what we're going to do today. That passage you've just heard read could perhaps be entitled The Errors of the Apostles, or or perhaps more precisely, The Errors of the Disciples and Would-Be Disciples. Because in it, Luke sets in front of us no less than eight errors committed by uh, the disciples. And we need to note those and to learn from them. So let's start by seeking God's help in relation to all of that. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would enable us to recognise the errors that the apostles and other followers of Jesus made, to keep them in our minds and to avoid them in our lives. Amen. 
Um, our passage today starts by telling us that while everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. It would be easy to assume that that happened immediately after the events recorded in chapters, in verses 42 and 43, the miraculous healing of Jesus. But Mark's gospel makes it clear that that's not the case. What in fact Luke is telling us is that while everyone in the whole area of Galilee was marvelling at all that Jesus did, all his miracles, Jesus took his disciples away uh, on their own and spoke to them alone. And he had a warning for them. The Son of Man, that's him, is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And Mark, again, makes it clear that what he was talking about was his death, as he had talked on other occasions. You see, amid all the excitement about what he was doing, he wanted his disciples to recognise that his mission was not quite what they imagined it to be. Uh, uh, Extraordinarily, and actually disturbingly, the climax of that mission was to be his death. And he wanted to emphasise that. Listen carefully to what I am about to tell you, he said. Actually, literally, it says, let this sink into your ears. He wanted to emphasise it because what he was telling them was central to who he was. He was the suffering servant Isaiah had prophesied about. His death was central to his mission. He had come not to serve, but to be, sorry, not to be served, but to serve as he said on another occasion, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that sets the context for the eight errors that uh, Luke mentions. So we need to look at those one by one. By the way, we shouldn't assume that all of the events recorded in this chapter happened in quick succession, one after the other, or even that they happened in the order that is mentioned here. Luke has clearly brought things together in order to make a point and to teach us the eight errors. Error one, lack of understanding of God's plans. Uh, Jesus said, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, but the apostles didn't understand what this meant. It was hidden from them, so they didn't grasp it. What was it they didn't understand? Jesus' statements about his death were perfectly clear, and Matthew tells us that those statements distressed the apostles, so they clearly understood that what he literally said, they understood he was going to die. What was it then that they didn't understand? I think it was they didn't understand how that statement that he was going to die fitted with his acknowledgement that he was the Messiah. How did the two things fit together? You may feel it was quite hard for the apostles at that time, but Jesus was clear later that that kind of ignorance was culpable. He said this on the way to Emmaus. 
How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Indeed, yes, and it's all there in the Old Testament. But they didn't understand. I think there are two things we need to take away from that. First of all, let's note that despite their lack of understanding and indeed all the other errors that we're just about to think about, Jesus accepted them. Feeble understanding does not prevent us being children of God. Uh, God accepts us on the basis of our faith in Jesus, not on the basis of our understanding, our knowledge, our wisdom. We just need to remember that. But there is a second thing. We should guard against spiritual blindness. Uh, Of course, there are some things that are not revealed to us. So we, we can't expect to understand everything. But the key points about the gospel, God's plans, God's will for us, are all set out in here. And we should seek to understand them. And that points to the second error. Error two, unwillingness to ask questions. They didn't understand what Jesus meant and they were afraid to ask him about it. Why? What were they scared of? Was it they feared that Jesus would rebuke them? Did they fear looking silly in front of one another? Was there an element of pride in relation to all of this? We don't know. But what we do know is they should have asked. And so should we. I do hope there's no one here this morning who fears asking questions about Jesus and the Christian faith. But, but, but if you are in that position, please do seek to overcome your, your fear. Pray about it. Ask for God's help. Put it at its most basic. It's rather better to look a little bit silly than to live in spiritual ignorance, isn't it? We should all ask questions, seek to understand. Error three, the desire for status. Verse 46, an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Oh dear. Well, just think about it. Jesus had just talked about his death. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. The apostles didn't understand and were too scared to ask him about it. And they had the nerve to debate who would be the greatest. Can you imagine how depressed Jesus must have felt about that? At one level, it's just incredible. And yet... I wonder whether quite a number of us here actually, if we're honest with ourselves, recognise that on occasions we've sought status. We've done little things designed to point to our superiority over other people. And we mustn't, must we? We just must avoid that. You see, Jesus came to serve and we're called upon to follow his example. End of verse 48. For it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. 
Jesus' enacted example is a very striking one. You heard, he took the child and brought him in front of the uh, disciples and used acceptance of that child as an example. It's striking for this reason. In the culture of Jesus' day, men frequently just didn't interact with children. They considered it was beneath them. Uh, This is an example from a writing of around that time. Uh, Morning sleep, midday wine, chattering with children, and tarrying in places where men of the common people assemble, destroy a man. On the contrary, said Jesus, if you accept someone who is of no account in the world's eyes, you welcome me. Fundamental overturning of that attitude. Oh, and by the way, this is not a subtle way of achieving status by inverted means. I'm lowlier than thou. It's not a competition. What Jesus was saying is that if we serve, then we achieve greatness in God's eyes, along, incidentally, with all the other people who serve. And so what we should be doing, picking up on last week's theme, is building one another up, encouraging one another into service so that we can all achieve greatness in God's eyes. Okay, error four. Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him. Why on earth should any Christian want to stop someone driving out demons? Sadly, the answer is factionalism. Did you notice that John did not say, we tried to stop him because we feared that he was seeing demon possession where there wasn't any? Didn't say that, did he? He didn't say, we tried to stop him because he was leading people away from you, Jesus. He didn't say, we tried to stop him because he was leading people into sin or other evil. No. Why did we try to stop him, he said to Jesus? Because he's not one of us. It's not very attractive, is it? And we have to do everything we can to avoid such factionalism. Uh, If someone is following Jesus, well, let me just quote what Jesus said first. Jesus' response was remarkably moderate. And what he did is he gave the uh, apostles a test to apply. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. If someone is not opposing the gospel, they're doing the work of God, this man was opposing evil, then we should be with them. We should not oppose them. Of course, if someone is opposing God's work, then that's different. If they're promoting sin or other evil, that's different. If they're not following Jesus or are undermining the gospel, that is different. But if they're doing the work of Jesus, opposing evil as this man was, then it doesn't matter that they're not one of us. 
They may be a member of a different church. They may have their service in a totally different style. They may do all sorts of things differently. But we are not to oppose that. Uh, incidentally, I, I suspect some of you uh, know that Jesus on another occasion said something which sounds at uh, first hearing to be the direct opposite of this. This comes from Luke 11. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Uh, the two statements are completely consistent. You see, what Jesus was saying in that latter quote is that we, as a matter of first importance, must ensure that we are following to Jesus, that we are committed to him, that we're not hanging back, that we are, as he put it, with him. But having done that, we need to take care we don't fall into factionalism. That's error four. Error five, zeal without knowledge. Verse 51, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And why did he resolutely set out for Jerusalem? What was going to happen to him there? He was going to die, as he knew. And he resolutely set out on the course that would lead him to the cross. In other words, he resolutely set out to do the ultimate act of service, which incidentally we talked about earlier in our creedal statement. He resolutely was on his way to serve by dying for us and ensuring that all who have faith in him could be forgiven. Keep that in mind as we consider what happened next. We're told that he went on into Samaria. That was the quickest way to Jerusalem, of course. And in one village, uh, he was rejected. And this outraged James and John, the apostles. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Well, one, it shows commendable faith. Two, it shows commendable commitment. In fact, it shows a real zeal for the glory of God. But sadly, it was zeal without knowledge, wasn't it? Yes, God's judgment on the rejection of Jesus will come. In fact, we hear about it in the very next chapter, about 20 verses further on. We are told that Jesus said this, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on, at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. Oh yes, judgment will come. But it's in the future... And it's down to God. Our task does not include executing God's judgment. Our task is to warn people of that judgment, to proclaim the gospel, to call people to repentance and faith. Trouble is, over the years, from time to time, some Christians have forgotten that with pretty tragic consequences. We absolutely must never forget it. 
avoid zeal without knowledge. So, those are the five errors of the apostles that Luke hasn't finished with us because he goes on to mention three errors of other would-be disciples. Error one, or rather error six, not counting the cost. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no way to lay down his head. When you hear it, you think that that man's profession of commitment is wonderful. But Jesus detected a shallowness in it. You see, Jesus didn't have an easy life, did he? We've just been hearing about where he was going. And he warns that his followers may well not have easy lives as well. In particular, like him, they will face, we will face, rejection in the world. And he wants his followers to understand that and to build their faith on a secure foundation. Uh, In Luke 14, we hear that Jesus said this, Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. You see, we mustn't make promises to God without first counting the cost. Because if we do, our promises are likely to prove to be empty. That's error six. Error seven. He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. It's not completely clear what that man's situation was or precisely what he was saying. It it, it may be that his father was already dead. It may be he was just old. It may be the man meant literally he wanted to go there and then and bury his father. Or he may have been saying, uh, let me look after my father until he dies and then I will follow you. It actually doesn't matter. It was conditional commitment. And conditional commitment is not commitment. God is not prepared to enter into negotiations about the terms of our commitment. Now, to be clear, God definitely does say we should honour our father and mother. He does want us to support and help one another. But all of those things should be part of our service of him, not negotiated exceptions to our service of him. Final error. Error eight. Looking back. Still another said to him, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. As in the 
case of the previous two would-be followers, on the surface, the person's response looks perfectly reasonable. Look, uh, Lord, I'll just pop back, just say goodbye to my family and I'll be right with you. But Jesus detected a problem with it. And the problem's similar to the previous man. There's an element of conditional commitment in it. But, but what Jesus appeared to have detected in this is that the man was, was still hankering after other things, holding back in terms of his commitment to Jesus. Now, Jesus, again, to be clear, generally doesn't ask us to give up our families. That's very much the exception, not, not the rule. But what we are called upon to do is to commit to Jesus and receive our families and, and everything else as things uh, through and in which we serve Jesus rather than things we hanker after, as it were, in opposition to our service of Jesus. Do you see all of what this is about? Unconditional commitment to Jesus and then seeing everything in our lives as part of that service of him. So there you have it. Eight errors. Lack of understanding of God's plan. Unwillingness to ask questions. The seeking of status. Factionalism. Zeal without knowledge. Not counting the cost. Conditional commitment. And looking back. There's quite a lot there, isn't there? And I am fully aware that the majority of you will not remember the majority of what I have said this morning. (laughs) Here's the good news. You don't have to. You see, I would be very surprised if there was anyone here who uh, makes all of the errors that have been mentioned this morning. If you do, do come and have a word afterwards. It will rather encourage me. (laughs) But here's the flip side. I very much doubt if there's anyone here who doesn't make any of the errors that I've mentioned. And what I suggest we all do is this. Over the next two or three days, take time to sit down quietly, go back, and read Luke 9, 43 through 62. And ask yourself... Which of these errors do I make? And then pray that God would help you to overcome those things. And think about what you're going to do in order to to avoid making them in the future. Will you do that? You see, if we do do that, we will learn from the errors of the apostles and the other would-be disciples. And in doing that will fulfil the purpose for which Luke wrote this. Amen.